right, uh, one more word of prayer, and then we'll dig back into John chapter 12 today. Heavenly Father, again, we, we come to you because we recognize that our, our hope, our victory, um, our sufficiency, uh, anything of any worth, even temporally, mm -hmm. let alone eternally, is from you. We recognize whether the world acknowledges it or not. Most people go on about their business, think they're they're accomplishing whatever they're accomplishing. But we know that um, that without your enabling, we can do nothing. Uh, think about what in a few chapters what we're going to encounter in fifteen. That apart from me, you can do nothing. Biden. So we we need this weekly, even daily reminder as we come back to your word, just to be washed again in it. I pray that you would do that, that you would, would refocus us, um, whatever the stresses have been this past week, and coming in even this morning, um, it seems like there's always an endless stream of problems that we face, big or small, um, and it's easy to get distracted. So I pray that you'll help us to bring our perspective back around to what matters. And uh, as, as we, we look at uh, the contrast here between um, the responses to the Lord Jesus after three years of ministry um, and uh, just reminded that um, the difference that your grace makes in hearts and as my wife said I pray also to for those that we love who don't know you mm -hmm. and there may be some that we'd be surprised that fall in that category so I pray that you would uh, would be opening hearts today not just here but around the world, everywhere your, your word is being opened um, and, and believers are assembled and gathered that you would, by your spirit, would bring uh, much fruit to your glory. We're well pleased with all that is said and done. In Jesus' name. John chapter 12. Chapter 12 is finishing up the public ministry of John's, or John's account of Jesus' public ministry. Um, as I mentioned to you before, the gospel, you know, we've been in this, I counted up, uh, we've been in this over 40 years now. <laughs> we don't drive through it, we walk through it, right? And, and so um, it, it's easy sometimes to, to lose sight. It's just, it's just good. And then we're kind of doing that here in these notes. You see on the back of your notes there that you've got parallel accounts in the other gospels. It's good to check in with the other gospels just to see uh, what John isn't telling us. Remember that this was written... Uh, some decades, maybe 30, 35 years after the other three Gospels came out, 50 years roughly after the events that he's describing happened. And, uh, and so John is filling in a lot of details that the other Gospels didn't, right? And we looked at that last time, uh, and that's particularly the first major top part of your notes there, that first section, a chronology problem, and... Um, not really a problem, but just, you know, on the surface, it, it was a little bit of a head-scratcher. And um, I just, I'll say again, I was listening to John MacArthur recently, and he, you know, it's always great when he agrees with me. <laughs> and, uh, but no, I just, I just have grown, I mean, you sometimes just kind of know stuff, but you don't, it kind of sinks in, it takes time to really appreciate the value of something. And, and so um, what he said there, I really appreciate, and that is um, that to ask questions of the text, right? Continue 
to ask those questions. Don't just read and kind of just let it, you know, run off your back or whatever, but really absorb it, really stop, think. Uh, nothing wrong with the through the year reading of the Bible, but, but my personal preference is I don't like that because I feel under the gun to just get through the text rather than understand it. So anyway, uh, I, I asked that question here. I, I, you know, I always like to look at those parallel accounts. And as I'm mentioning up there, Matthew and Mark um, uh, put this anointing of Jesus by Mary after the triumphal entry. Okay. But John's account makes it very clear, and actually, I would say not just clear, but necessary. Necessarily, the wording that he uses there in um, in verse uh, twelve of chapter twelve, the next day, the large crowd had come to the feast and so forth. Right? His wording makes it that demands that we understand the chronology to be the reverse of what Matthew and Mark appear to, to say. So I, I, I wanted. You know, when you go back and you look at that wording, and it's it's for convenience, it's reprinted on the back of your notes there. You can see the context and, and all of that. Uh, but Matthew and Mark are simply backing up in time, right? It's a common story uh, technique. If you want to, to tell a story, we do this in movies or it's a verbal story or whatever, books do the same thing. If you have two events that happen essentially in parallel, you, you can't be two places at the same time with the readers and with the viewing audience, right? So... You have to tell one storyline, and then you back up and you say, okay, now let's go back to the, to this, and let's tell that storyline and have it in parallel. And that's what's Matthew and Mark's account, and John and Tony, that is the, the actual order of things in which this happened, okay? And Matthew and Mark... Um, uh, Emphasis, you would say, well, why did they do it the way they did it? And, and it's, it's clear, it seems clear to me that Matthew and Mark to, to draw a direct connection between the anointing of, so, so you had this one event, right? Mary anoints the feet of Jesus and the head and feet, okay? And she anoints Jesus with this oil. Matthew and Mark then draw a direct line to that and Judas going, to the chief priests and the elders to say, I've had enough, sign me up for this conspiracy, okay? Whereas John's concern is to show um, the connection of the raising of Lazarus to the enthusiasm of the crowds in the triumphal entry. And the other gospels don't even talk about the raising of Lazarus. And so when you, when you read the other gospel accounts, it's a little confusing. Where did all these people suddenly just pop up out of the ground and they're all enthusiastic? And not just his disciples, right? I mean, they started. They're sort of the, the match that lights the lights the fuse, you might say, right? But there's a lot of welcoming people, who, you know, enthusiastic people who welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. And they seem to just sort of but John says, no, well, actually, it's because of the raising of Lazarus and the testimony of those significant witnesses, right? It wasn't just Mary Martha and his disciples there to see that. John makes it very clear. There was, there was a large, influential crowd of Jerusalem-based cream of the crop, one percenters, there to see it. And many of them started to believe in Jesus, and they were very enthusiastic. And many 
Again, we're not exactly clear how long between the raising Lazarus and this event here, but probably I'm thinking maybe a week, week and a half, something like that. There's still a lot of enthusiasm, and as, as other Jews who weren't there to, to see that begin to come into Jerusalem, and these are faithful Jewish people, right? They're obeying the law. This is one of the three required feasts. So they're coming in, they're streaming in, and as many, as many possibly as a million people, uh, according to some, some estimates from, from numbers of sheep being slaughtered at that time, uh, could be coming into town. And these witnesses who saw the raising of Lazarus are spreading that around, and that enthusiasm and people are really excited, and the buzz is there. And so the two gospel accounts are not wrong or contradictory, it's just that they have different emphasis. And, and uh, you know, so as I was thinking about it again, and uh, was listening to to John on, on this this John Carper in this text. Um, you know, his, his he 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 is he's, he brings out, and he's right. John is kind of setting before us the stark contrast. It's almost like we've had three years of ministry now with Jesus. Right? He's been healing. He's been teaching. Um, he's been. Um, ministering night and day to people and just pouring himself out and uh in fact there's a sense in which you could say he died many times before he went to the cross right he just he died to himself many times and just and so he's pouring out and you have three years of this now what's the fruit of it and it's like mary and judas are icons of the two extreme reactions you know they're sort of examples of the two extreme reactions of people some people so enthusiastic and believing in him others just hating him you know and completely disappointed and then there's uh there is sort of the indifferent crowd of people that are just curious to come and watch uh, what's happening at this supper okay so that kind of frames the larger picture of what's happening and that's what we're trying to do there with the top part of the notes there chronology problem um, then, then we dealt last time with a similar story in Luke's account, um, Luke's gospel. He doesn't really, Luke doesn't really talk about this anointing by Mary, but he does talk about another woman who uh, did a very, very similar thing, right? And, and I, I'm just explaining to you there why I don't believe that this is the same accounts. Um, the chronology doesn't allow for it. First of all, timeline doesn't allow for it. Secondly, uh, there's enough detail there. Uh, to make it clear, uh, even though, <laughs> ironically, both of these pouring out of fragrant oil, um, in Luke's account, it doesn't actually say spike in the heart, it just says a pregnant one. And, um, but in, in both accounts, it, the event happens, the anointing happens in the house of a man named Simon. Right? It's just one is a Pharisee and the other is a former leper. Okay? And, uh, uh, Simon the leper evidently was another wealthy guy. I think Bethany was a, like I said, it was sort of a, a rich suburb of Jerusalem. You kind of think of it that way. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were wealthy, and so was Simon the leper. But he was obviously not a leper anymore, right? And uh, I said it had been in his home. And, um, but he was well-to-do, and they had this feast in honor of Jesus. And... The text doesn't directly say, but I think it's pretty safe to infer that he had been healed by the Lord and was, was almost certainly a believer in, in offering his home out of gratitude for what he's done. And then Mary, Martha, and Lazarus come, are invited, and Martha's serving, right? You know, she's doing what Martha's wired to do and enjoys that, and and, uh, and and they're all there, and they're, this is a feast in honor of the 
people who love him and who are excited by him. What a contrast with Judas who's there to just, you know, let's get rid of him, let's kill him, let's crucify him. Um, anyway, so let's not be con confused with that other account in, in, in Luke. All right, so let's get into our outline. Um, verses 1 and 2. Uh, chapter 6, chapter, sorry, <laughs> chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, right? So they had a, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And if you flip to the back of your notes there, you'll see the parallel counts, Matthew, Matthew, Mark. Um, and that would be uh, uh, starting with verse 6 in, in Matthew's account. Now when Jesus, um, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and, and then um, Mark, and I've just put a little space in there so you can kind of see where that starts. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he's reclining at the table. Uh, woman came with the alabaster glass. Um, John again is giving us some more accounts. He's or, or, or more details. Uh, he's he's filling in time and place uh, a little bit more. He doesn't tell us that this is Simon the leper's house because the other gospels have already told us that. But he does tell us um, that it was six days before the Passover. Okay, so this is. Six days roughly before he goes to the cross. And I say roughly because, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you may wonder, like I did, well, how do we know how many people came into Jerusalem? And the answer is that Josephus uh, and some other ancient historians give us accounts of the account of the number of lambs that were being slaughtered during Passover and makes kind of extrapolate from that. Okay, well, just. I can't remember the numbers, but it's tens of thousands of lambs that were being slaughtered, mm -hmm. okay? And then they extrapolate from that approximately how many families and come up with a rough estimate of how many people were there um, re represented by those sacrifices. And so um, I got to thinking about that. Okay, that's good for, for population numbers. But what about just, you think practically, how do you slaughter tens of thousands of these animals in a day. You know, you just run out of time. I mean, they had a lot of priests in there, and they're, they're it's assembly line, they're cutting throats and leaving the animal out, but it just takes time, you know, it takes time to bleed the animal out and, and all of that, right? It just takes time. And so, it, you know, Passover uh, practically would have been spread out over probably a couple of days. Um, so, depending on uh, when you count Passover. Uh, the Galileans, uh, we see that when we get into um, chapter 13 and through 17, right? Um, the Galileans would typically celebrate it on the night before the actual day of, right? And so many of the Galilean sacrifices would be done that day. And then the Judeans would celebrate it the day of, kind of like Christmas and Christmas Eve, right? Kind of the same idea. You know, those of us who are spiritual, Warner would agree, celebrate on Christmas Eve, right? Amen, brother. Others of you, Christmas Day. Oh, 
restrictions. <laughs> All right. Um, but same idea. So anyway, point is, he pins it, you know, we're about a, a roughly a week away from the cross because Jesus died on the day of, right, the Passover, the official Passover day, when the sacrifices were still were being slaughtered in the temple. And so I, I'm kind of thinking that's probably what, what John has in mind is, is the, the cross, about six days from the cross. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. Now, where was he before? Uh, anybody remember? Near the wilderness. <clears throat> Ephraim. Ephraim. Right, let's back up in previous chapter, verse um, 54. Obviously up there. Oh, by the way, um, I think it's uh, there's some accounts in Luke, and I can't remember which, which other gospel might have been Matthew, but Luke particularly records um, kind of a return to Samaria that happened, and Ephraim is roughly in that area, and that would make sense that that Jesus would would do that and return to Samaria. This at this time they were not quite as welcoming as they were in chapter four. <clears throat> Which is interesting. So there, there are some things that he did up there that recorded in the other accounts. Um, but, uh, but Ephraim is notice that John gives this detail in verse fifty-four uh, there to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim. So he's not completely out like John the Baptist, out literally in the wilderness where nobody's living except crazy people with, you know. Honey on their breath and leather belts and all that. Um, yeah, um, but but Jesus, notice what what I want you to see there is the is the the shift in sort of methodology. Jesus is no longer traveling from village to village as almost as quickly as he can. I mean, he stays a while to minister to people, but he doesn't stay real long in any, anywhere, right? He's he's constantly trying. And, and, and even that, he, he's running out of little hamlets and places that, that, so he sends out his disciples, right, to also preach and heal and try to cover the territory as much as he can. But that slowed down quite a bit. And we actually saw that um, at the end of chapter 10 even, right, um, uh, verse 40, where he went across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptized, and there he remained. Okay? He's not, he's, he's pretty much done with his public ministry and the presentation of himself and the message that he's bringing, right? And, um, and so he's, he, why is he, why is he going up there to this place near the wilderness? Um, well, it's, it tells us at the beginning of that verse that they had, you know, because they, he no longer walked openly. Well, why not? Well, back up. Um, they had that emergency council uh, the Sanhedrin, that's there. That's really the real trial of Jesus, right? So they had the real trial of Jesus, um, and they decided on the Jews, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the emergency council of the Sanhedrin, and uh, and they decided there to to um, put him to death. And so he's not tempting fate, as we say, right? So he's he is in that area, but now it's six days before Passover. And he's coming to Bethany. Bethany's two miles away from Jerusalem. 
And uh, and Simon the leper, and I could, you know, obviously he knew Mary Martha Lazarus. <laughs> and by this point, John gives us a clue too. Um, from here on out, Lazarus was known, probably the most well-known person aside from Jesus in that immediate area, um, because uh, he had a comma after his name, whom Jesus raised from the dead, right? Right. That, so imagine a dinner in this guy's house, right? Here's Simon the leper who was healed. I mean, that's significant. If you're a leper, you're, you're in that state pretty much permanently, right? There's really no hope for getting out of it. You might get out of it, but you're isolated. And, 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 and so if you're healed from that, you know, can you imagine the enthusiasm and the, you know, the, the, the stories that you can tell? So he's, he's at dinner. And then here's this guy, Lazarus, who was dead for four days. And, every, and a lot of the people that, were, that are there uh, at that dinner saw that, or many of them did, or heard the accounts of it. And then there's Jesus, right? How many of you want to come to that dinner? <laughs> yeah, so I'm, yeah. And so uh, John lets us know that here in a minute. He's, uh, that there were a number, a number of people that came. They had a dinner for him, and he tells us Martha served, no doubt, right? We know, we know Martha's got that wiring. Lazarus is one of those reclining with him at the table. We miss that. Reclining, they didn't sit like we do, right? Uh, or even sometimes we stand and eat. Um, but uh, they would recline, sort of lay down, propped up on the elbow, and eat together. Um, one of the things that John MacArthur said too about this, which I thought was worth mentioning, is that uh, this is not a rushed meal. This is the last meal of the day. The Greek word indicates that. You know, uh, this translation ESV says dinner. It's a supper. It's 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 not a breakfast. Um, and it just shows again, in a kind of a subtle way, that meals are not just to fill an empty stomach as quick as possible. Right, Pastor. <laughs> This is a time to fellowship around the food. It's a time to slow down. It's a time for people, as I mentioned to you last time, with the sort of very similar story in Luke's account, that woman uh, that was, who was a prostitute and weeping on Jesus' feet and beginning to know him and all that, uh, she was not invited by the Pharisee. So why was she there at his home? Well, the answer to that is that they had a tradition uh, you know, that it was, even if you weren't in, directly invited to the feast, if somebody really famous, uh, you know, a VIP came to the home, it was understood that it was sort of open to whoever wanted to come and just stand around the, the perimeter of the room, you know, and just listen. You, you didn't necessarily engage in the conversation. That's why I don't think that that, that woman uh, spoke at all. There's no recording of her speech. She's just weeping, right? And, and she's repenting of her sin quietly there. And anointing Jesus, um, and and Mary does this kind of a similar thing here. We'll talk about that. But um, this is this is well attended, and they have this dinner for him. And there's a lot of people there, sort of standing around the around the perimeter of the room, as well as those guests who are invited or reclining at the table. Um, and so then look at verse. Uh, that's sort of point number one, right? As John sets the scene. Point number two, Mary anoints Jesus. 
Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Um, look at the parallel accounts here, and we'll see if you notice anything different. Um, verse 7 of Matthew's account, a woman came up to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and, he, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And then Mark's account is sort of part B of verse 3. As he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster, or time saying alabaster flask <laughs> of anointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. What what do you notice as the differences in the accounts there? One one particular difference. Well, did she anoint his head or his feet? Answer is yes. Okay. It's both. It's both. Well, nothing wrong with that. The feet. There's a custom this way because feet feet washing. Jesus said, "Serve your servanthood." And he knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. That was just their custom. That's right. That's right. Um, let's talk about this oil for a second, um, or this ointment here, it's, it's, um, ESV says ointment. Does anyone have a tr translation that says oil? Everybody says ointment. We don't know what spikenard is, right? Um, generally, uh, some people do. I actually looked it up online. You can get little bottles of it. It's not very expensive. Buy our famous today, six or seven dollars. Get a little, little dropper and whatever. Um, essential oil, they call them. Um, when I, as a kid, when I, <laughs> I would read translations like that that use the word ointment. My mind immediately went to our medicine cabinet where we have the little tubes of neosporine, you know, Vaseline-based ointments, right? And I'm, I'm trying to put this together. How is he? Because that stuff, you don't pour that out. You kind of squeeze it out and you kind of smear it maybe, you know. Uh, uh, but that's not what's happening here, okay? This is, this is an oil. It's a thicker oil. It's not maybe real, 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 real liquidy, but it's, it, you don't squeeze it out either. Um, this is made from a plant that grows, you know, think of your geography, I took the map in there, but um, think of your geography, it's, it's in the highlands of China, Nepal, and India, right? <coughs> By the way, what, what mountain is there in that area? The world famous mountain, highest mountain in the world, come on now, over Everest. Everest, right? These are high mountains, okay? I, I don't know, nothing grows on Everest, that makes sense up there, but, okay, but it's, it's in that general area, those highlands right there, um, there there's a plant, so actually, um, there's a number of plants that you can get kind of a similar, they're sort of in a similar family, and you get a similar sort of family of fragrant oils from these plants, but 
without being too picky about it. Spikenard is the plant, and it would come from its oil, from its root, and they would distill it down to the essential oil, very fragrant oil. And uh, and and here's where the so that's expensive enough. But where's the real expense in getting in in this whole in getting it to Mary? Where is she located? At least. What's that? Middle East. Middle East, right, right. Almost the Mediterranean Sea, right? So if you think about your map, you got China, Nepal, and India way over here. You didn't have airplanes, right? You didn't have cars and tractor trailers, camels, horses maybe, or mules or something, whatever. They, they have to, to travel those winding roads with this precious cargo a long distance. So that ex helps to explain the cost of this thing, why it was so expensive. It's not just the distillation of it and, and the, you know, the actual uh, accumulation of the oil itself, but also the shipping costs. Well, that's a local Walmart. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. So today you can go on Amazon, you can order this stuff. <clears throat> Six bucks and it's there, right? plus shipping, which wouldn't be a year's wage. Okay? <laughs> which is, by the way, what Judas tells us it's worth. Um, so, this oil of spikenard, what did they use it for? Uh, someone, was it, Debbie said, your, your translation says perfume? Somebody said perfume, perfume, okay. Well, that kind of hits to us, you know, that obviously, and John even tells us that, that the house was filled with the fragrance, right? So it's a, it's a lovely fragrance, you know, and they're not like, uh, not that different than we are. They liked to smell good. <laughs> Like we do. Um, as you all know, we're having some fun with our water and we can't take showers whenever we want to anymore. Uh, we have to go to the gym, go out of the way to do that. So, which means that there's just sometimes you can't get there and take a shower. And I can tell you, after a couple of days, you're happy for that shower. I mean, even just a few days. And so, it's everybody else too, right? But yeah, I mean, you feel that. It's just your body. Um, and so, they didn't take showers like we do and so forth. Um, and we have deodorant and other things that help to hide our natural odor. Um, and, and so they would use it that way. But what what else would they use it for? And what really Jesus draws the connection here to? Burial. Burial, right. So the Jews, unlike the Egyptians, right? The Egyptians are still even today famous for preserving the bodies and all of that. The Jews didn't do that. They they left the body pretty much intact, which means that it would start to, you know, get the blood out of that body quick and fill it with preservatives and everything else. It starts to decay really fast, really fast. I remember one of our kitties uh, died recently, you know, about a year or so ago. And, um, 2020, a couple years ago. Um, almost right away, you know, within hours, you could start to just catch the whiff of. So the bodies don't they don't stay preserved long at all, and so the Jews, you know, um, would would uh, and we see that with the burial of Jesus too, where where uh, Joseph and and uh, um, Nicodemus came with lots of this these spices and these these oils to cover the body, and then they would wrap it, uh, they wrap the body, and then the head separately, right? Now. Do you suppose that, let me ask you this, Mary 
had somebody very dear to her die recently. Who was that? You suppose this oil might have been intended for him? The text doesn't tell us. Clearly, it wasn't used on him. Right? He already been bound. Yeah, you already so been bound. Probably, it was, I would, I would think that. But I was thinking maybe it was done for his bound, but not necessarily because it came the morning after Jesus had died to anoint the body. So it could have, it could have been put on the spot that they were wrapped in. They would they would apply it directly to the body and then wrap the body. Think about this though. You said so why was why was Jesus in I know it was in a hurry, but why did they come the day after to anoint his body? Because they hadn't finished because it was somebody else that had done it and the, the women wanted to come and probably at that point, you know, I, I think at that point the Sabbath they they yeah, the Sabbath got in the way is really what it was. There's a there's a day in there where nobody can do anything. They can't come and do that. So it's a day immediately after that, like really early in the morning, uh, when they come to sort of finish the job. There seems to. Anyway, even if it's yeah, to actually accomplish, you know, or they it probably, I think, was more out of respect. And just to point, maybe just uh, it probably would have wrapped his body. And it would have just uh, they were concerned. But anyways, like when Saint Lazarus, see, I don't know if it was for him because if he was sick. It would have taken a lot more time unless they had it just sitting there waiting for this occasion or a occasion that they needed that. Because if they would have said, "Oh, he's sick," then he, they couldn't have got it in time. It's not like they could order and get it the next day. Mm -hmm. It would probably take. Weeks or months to even get it, so they probably have to have it on hand for other reasons too, instead of just anointing the body. Maybe that was for in case someone did pass and they had it. But I think it would, like you said, I think the main reason for this stuff is to 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 uh, cover up the mask, the smell of rubber, more accurately. Well. Um, We've already established that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were a wealthy family, so they, they obviously had this. If Mary is not earning this with her wages, you know, as a prostitute, we've established that. So she's, my, we don't know, because the text doesn't say, but um, clearly this, this is used for uh, anointing dead bodies for burial. Um, and, and, and it's not clear that Mary necessarily made the connection with her anointing of Jesus to his burial. She might have. My, my tendency is to think she probably did, and I'll tell you why. I, I like the gospel accounts when it talks about Mary. We don't really hear anything she's saying, but she's, she's listening. And she has a very interesting relationship to the feet of Jesus. And the feet of Jesus picture, uh, to, to my way of seeing, when you put all her story together, seems to be that place of listening to him. And, and I, unlike the chattery disciples who uh, many times got ahead of themselves and 
thought they knew more than they did. It seems like Mary really listened and, and probably captured more of an understanding than, than they did. And, and he did say, I'm going to be I'm going to be handed over to the Jews and I'm going to be killed. And third day I'm going to rise again, didn't he? I mean, many times. Well, somewhere along the way, she probably heard that. Pharisees did. The Pharisees did, yeah. And, and like we said, many times actually the Pharisees listened to Jesus better than his disciples did. You know, for different reasons, right? But um, anyway, so it's not clear that Mary really knew, put everything together. But, uh, you know, I agree with, with John MacArthur about this, that, that this is a pouring out, whatever else we want to say about her motivation for it or what it was set aside for. <clears throat> a couple things are very clear. Number one, it's very, very expensive. The other gospel accounts, uh, Judas of all people, says this could have been sold for 300 denarii, which denarius is a day's wage, so that's a roughly an annual salary. So, you know, whatever the annual average salary is, what, 45K, I think, is a medium salary now in this area, something like that. Um, that's a lot of money. That's, a, that's like a good used car, right? Or new car. <laughs> new car. <laughs> used car anymore, too. That's sad. <laughs> Yeah, let's go to Subaru. <laughs> There's always exceptions. Down the There's always one every class. Too, right? I know. That's a, it's, yeah. Always a, every class has to have its one. Um, yes. So so that's a lot of money. So and they're well, but they're wealthy. They can they can probably swing it uh, maybe, but it, it would have been a significant sacrifice for her nonetheless. Okay, it, it, even for somebody as wealthy as she is. It reminds me of, of what King David said, well, I give a word that which cost me nothing. This was not trivial for her. This meant a lot to her. And she's sitting there listening in this dinner. And imagine the conversation, you know, Simon the leper's there, her own brother, other people in the room are, are prominent people are gathered there, his disciples, and of course Jesus himself. And she's listening to the conversation. And she's watching him interact. She's, I guarantee you, and this is pouring out of fragrant oil on Jesus. In both cases, both of these women are doing that out of repentance as a show, an outward display of giving up something that means a lot to me that has, that has maybe even been an idol in my heart for a while up to this point, but to the Lord to show. His worth is far greater than the And I think that's what's going on here. There's, there's no doubt about it. She just, you know, while again, while everybody else is chattering and excited, whatever, she's listening and she's taking it in. And and the, the account in Luke is the, the uh, uh, prostitute, right? And, you know, she's woman of sin, and you know, this, this Simon the Pharisee even says, right? But she's repenting of that sin, we understand that. But what's Mary repenting of? Her unbelief. Yes, her unbelief. She, when she got caught up in that whole whirlwind of doubt that we saw in chapter 11, right? The disciples were struggling with their faith. Martha, the other Jews that were there, Mary herself came and said exactly the same thing Martha did. 
In fact, those are only words of Mary that I can find. Um, but uh, she is so grateful. And you know, uh, Paul says in, in Romans 4, um, Romans 2, chapter 2, uh, verse 4, that uh, the kindness of God should cause you to repent. We often think of, you know, God has to put me through the ringer in order to really get my attention and cause me to repent. Right? That's the only tool in God's chest is hard trials to get me to repent. But what Paul actually says there in Romans is he's got at least one more, and that is blessing in the face of undeserved sinners who don't deserve. And you, you're expecting you're expecting the wealth to come and the rebuke and the and instead here comes a gift of huge grace, right? And and Jesus he doesn't, you know, he does snort and sigh with the, the unbelief around him, right? We've looked at that and he sees you weeping in chapter eleven. And it's not because of Lazarus, it's because of the unbelief around him. Um, but but still in the midst of that, he doesn't say, all right, fine, and throw up his hands and walk away. He gives everybody there this huge gift of grace to see the greatest public miracle that he ever did. And then for Mary and Martha both to receive their beloved brother back, what a rebuke to her unbelief. And it's my opinion that in, in studying all that, put it together, that that's what she's doing here. And so... She just quietly gets up. She knows this thing is back in a storage cabinet or in her room or something. She may have been planning for it. What? She may have planned for it. She may, she, she may have. Uh, we don't know. Uh, I didn't think it was spontaneous, but she's like, I know what I can do. And, and while everybody's chattering away, she just quietly goes. The other counts say that she it was an alabaster jar. Alabaster itself is expensive, right? It's a type of stone. It's, it's a very fine type of marble in a way. It could be, you know, if, if it's carved thin enough, it, it could be translucent. You hold up to the light. Very pretty. And I think the, the, the wording actually, the other counts is that she crushed it. Uh, it's the idea of crushing it, not just sort of gently breaking it or something. She destroyed that box to get all that oil out, pour it on his head, likely down to his feet, just to cover him as he's reclining there. <clears throat> and uh, and she's was she weeping? We don't know. They count in Luke that with that that woman of the night, uh, she was weeping there, that prostitute. But I don't know that she is necessarily here. But she does do something else. And right at the tail end of verse three, and what is that? Wipes what? His feet. Feet. Okay. How many of you ladies with long hair, longer hair, would like to wipe my feet this morning with your hair? <laughs> Looking around, you felt it was really necessary. <laughs> Come on, Erica. <laughs> I don't think you, my wife, would want to do that. Well, my hair's not long enough to do that. Oh, so that's what that way you've got to get closer to the foot. That was the short hair to get closer to the foot. Well, even if your hair is fairly long, you still have to get pretty intimate with those feet. Yeah, you? Yeah. Well, my feet are covered with you know socks and, and they're clean enough. Jesus' feet um, and, and everybody's feet would have been open 
sandals, right? Maybe even barefoot. They'd have been very dirty. They may have been washed, probably were. It's very custom, you know. Uh, we're gonna see that chapter 13. Uh, nobody bothered to wash the feet, so Jesus did. Um, but it was a custom to do that, especially if you're reclining at a table and you're, you're, you're leaning here and the next guy's feet are there, you know, right there. So it probably had, were washed, but nevertheless, um, it's just not a, a uh, even even in our culture, we understand that that's, we don't want to be that, right? I mean, it's just, this is lower my, but it just, to me, it's another example of her stepping down, you know, from this, this place of pride and disbelief to a place of humble acceptance of, of who he is and, and embracing her rightful place at his feet. Um, there's another thing here which we don't culturally see right away, and that is it was a, a, uh, a shameful thing for a self-respecting Jewish woman to loosen her hair around other men who she wasn't directly related to. So, you know, um, even though it doesn't say, we, we know that the, the hair would have been up here like this and she would have perhaps taken a cloth, whatever was covering it, and, and, and unwound it. Is likely quite long, okay? But she she would have been wiping it with her hair, and it's uh, Paul says the glory of the woman is her hair. Uh, it is it is something that I, I like to say. I never met a woman satisfied with her hair. <laughs> it's always too long, too short, too straight, too curly, wrong color, right? Um, so it's it, it's it's another source of, of pride and appearance, but she's sacrificing not just the oil but all of that right all of the social stigma a wealthy respected jewish woman letting her hair down like this what it, come on really you go that far yeah what does this tell us about repentance just humbling you can't hold on to your pride. And it's a good thing to be greater than repentance. Psalm 51 really grabs this attitude, this, this proper perspective before God, right? David's psalm of repentance after he had been finally called out by Nathan on his sin of, of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundance. You hear that lavish word? What, what Mary's doing here is very lavish. It's extreme in its lavishness. It's extreme in its sacrifice. Why? Because in the face of such lavish grace and forgiveness and loving kindness that she has been shown and had been shown and is being shown, nothing else comes even close as a response. Thank you, Jesus. No, that's not enough. <clears throat> According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret part, right? Um, <clears throat> I've said many times, we talked about questions to ask of the text of the Bible. One of the top questions that you want to ask continually of the Bible is, how do I make the invisible visible, right? And the answer to that is, by its effects. Uh, we know time is real by its effect. You don't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, hear it, but you definitely see its effect when you look in the mirror. Right? <laughs> or you just feel the effect like we were talking about earlier. Um, same with gravity. Uh, there's a lot of things. Love is one of the, the Bible is full of invisible things that it says are known by its effect. The biggest one, of course, is God himself. Uh, and the effect of, of an invisible God is the creation. Creation is that effect, right? And, and other things, of course, the Lord himself coming is, is an effect of the Father's love. Uh, the invisible love of the Father is seen in the visible uh, uh, incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but notice here, David is, here's another one of those invisible things. How, where's repentance happening? It's in the heart. It's, it's unseen. So we can safely deduce that Mary, what Mary is doing is the fruit or the effect of unseen repentance, unseen humility in her heart. It's this attitude that she has. She knows who it is that's sitting there and, and, and what he has done for her. And she doesn't care what anyone else in the room thinks about her reputation, that all of that is gone in the face of such immense mercy and grace that she's been shown and the sacrifice which she hears him saying that he's going to do for her sin. And as a result of, of all of that, the invisible attitude of her heart becomes visible and pouring out of this oil. You delight in truth in the where? Inward being. That's where repentance is happening. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. This is the visible side, right? And I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. That's his physical constitution. He was sick, right? He wasn't getting good sleep and other things. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew the right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of, of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And down in verse 17, it's the last verse we'll look at. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. The broken, contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Mary's heart had been broken in repentance. And that breaking of that alabaster jar and pouring, pouring out of the oil is such a beautiful symbol. Of, of the type, if you will, of, of the repentance of all true believers who come to Jesus in full recognition of their unworthiness of his sacrifice. What else can she do? Right? What else can she do? Any, um, any thoughts? Yeah. Okay. You know, and that wasn't even, you know, like in verse 16, though, the, it says, for you will not delay in sacrifice, or I would give it. So he doesn't want us to give anything. No, because then it would be pride. Like she could have said, 
she would be like, okay, everybody look at this box, uh, you know, that, that point that I'm giving, you know, they probably didn't even realize that that's what it was until she had already broken it. You know, she didn't have seen about this. We like to do that sort of thing. And, um, and you will not be pleased with the faith in offering, uh, which would just be a, ne a necessary thing or a ritual, right? Um, like, even people think that they can only ask for forgiveness if they walk up to the altar of the church, you know, because I know that Jeff's uh, previous wife, Chris, that was a big deal to her. She was like, I, you know, I went up to the altar when I was such and such an age. That's what she held on to, and that was very, very important to her. So, you know, that's that's not important. And then, of course, it says the sacrifices of God are work of spirit. That's no pride. That's nothing that we have accomplished. We haven't walked anywhere. We haven't done anything. We haven't given anything. We haven't anything. It is all about the heart. That's what you said. So that's the only thing that's important. It's nothing. Of those other two verses, and that's all it says for verse 17. After all those things, the only thing is the broken and contrite heart of God, you will not despise. That's the only acceptable, acceptable meanings of asking for forgiveness. I think what David is saying there is not, not that you know you don't want sacrifices, sacrifices at, at that time were required by law to repentance of sin. Yeah, no, that's what and I'm saying. That. Is, but that's not what. But that's not what heals us. Is the exactly. ritual or the exactly. that, that that would be the law. That's know? why he so, asks God for the. What he's saying is, you know, if you want bulls and, and lambs, I got that in spades, right? I can do that. I can do that. But he's asking God for the one thing that I can't do is cleanse my heart. Give me a new heart, a clean heart. Cleanse my sin. Take it away, because I'm powerless to do it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the only thing I can offer you is this broken heart that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't. And, and it, it never worked from the start, really. And now I just recognize that, and it's it's shattering to me. And and in uh, in humility, I come and I beg you for a clean, functioning, real heart. You know. I think the entire Psalm fifty-one is written as an aftermath of an extended period of time in which David went through the ritual of sacrifice and went through the, the, the offerings and stuff to try to get his conscience clean and it didn't work. Yeah, amen. That's good. That's good point. Just go show the bankruptcy and emptiness of religion. Right? Yeah. What a contrast with Judas who is still seeing the outward, right? Only focus on the outward. He's not, Jesus is looking at her heart. That's why his rebuke and combining all the gospels together is so strong. And then sets up a memorial for her to memorialize this is because she's a good example for us of what real repentance looks like. Not necessarily go home and pour out your oil, but what is it that's so valuable to you that you struggle with letting it go, right? But you recognize the worth of Jesus for the rest. How many times do we get that broken feeling when we know we've done something wrong? See, she carried that from that unbelief, like Paul was saying. That's what broke her heart. She had nothing, you know. And I think Peter, Peter is a good example of that too. He felt that after the third time he denied Christ. And people give him a hard time, but I'm thinking, put yourself in his shoes. He's getting ready to probably be killed too. 
Not that he didn't love Jesus, he loved him very much. He had that. The sinful man definitely took over his thoughts at that time. But once, I can imagine, once he denied him the third time, the rooster crowed, and Jesus looked at him. <laughs> can you imagine what the man felt? He probably said, kill me now, because I don't deserve to live. I'm just saying, he was broken as well. So, it's going to be interesting. I, I, I want to find out exactly, you know, one day, you know, we can talk about it, you know, just how hurt he was, you know, because it, it don't really elaborate, elaborate on that. Uh, I'm sure that he was just a... Luke says he went out and got bigger. Same thing with her. She was here. Right. We need to do that. We need to do that. Yes, we do. I have to say, and I'm not preaching to you. I mean, this is me. You know, we heard Bruce Walker say many times, you know, repentance is the maintenance of the Christian law. It is. How many times have we kind of flipped it? Repentance. Oh, I did it again. Sorry, Lord, forgive me. Was on. Let's watch the next episode of you know, this, this dinner. I'm not saying we have to grovel every, you know, but there should be those times of real heart reflection and repentance. And the Spirit really, thankfully, He doesn't pound us into the, into the ground with every little sin, chippy attitude, and things, you know. But when He does really put His finger on something, stop and let Him do His work. Remind you of that broken heart that you need to have. Come back to that place where Mary's at. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I need to hear this. We all need to hear this this morning because we are, even, even as redeemed people with a new heart and with the Holy Spirit residing, you know, the New Testament is still full of warnings about you know, be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit when you can see it for the day of redemption. And, um, we, can, we can do that. And I do that, and I do that way more than I would like to admit publicly. And uh, we need to keep coming back to that place where David and, and Mary are here and exemplify that with, in David's case, writing that beautiful song that is probably one of the more, most well-known songs. Yes. And, uh, and in Mary's case, with her pouring out of this oil, this sacrifice of, of something so so precious so dear and um, what a beautiful picture it is of, of you being broken out broken and releasing that uh, fragrant beautiful sacrifice that was uh, appeasing to God for our sins and um, how could we be so flippant in our sin great cost that it, it, it was for you it is for you so help us to be people who are constantly aware, not of our own worthiness, but of, of your great mercy and your great grace to us. And in humility to offer up the sacrifices of a broken heart that repent of this easy and quick to repent of sin, to keep the air clear with you and with others. And then that also doesn't take pride in appearance, but judges the righteous judgment. And, and, and doesn't doesn't secretly condemn others who, who don't see the light like we do because we don't deserve it either. So bless uh, the rest of the, this day, the service this morning. Thank you for Tzale's coming again, and we just pray a blessing on all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.